Hello, everybody. In today's podcast interview, we kick off season one with an interview with Albert Wanger. And in re-listening to this interview, I was just reminded how impactful and unique two of these concepts are. You know, you can think of the uniqueness of a macro transition or a macro concept as the amount of time that these transitions have been occurring on divided by the number of transitions that have occurred. And it's kind of abstract, but what I mean by that is you can think of the best historians as ones that have extracted the biggest macro trends from the largest amount of time. You're like, oh, among all this time, here are three key trends. So with that kind of as a frame, there are two big ones that we talked about today. The first is this kind of in the realm of macro scarcities for humanity. And that's what Albert talks about in his book in The World After Capital, from this transition of a world where capital is scarce to a world where time and attention are scarce. And this has really only happened la- twice in the last you know, tens of thousands of years. You know, agricultural revolution 12,000 years ago from scarce food to scarce land. You know, enlightenment and the industrial revolution about 500 years ago from scarce land to scarce scarce capital. So this like macro scarcity transition hasn't happened much. The other big one that we talk about is organizational technology and specifically blockchain as a new kind of organizational technology. And, you know, when Albert talks about organizational technology, he means something that humans can use to kind of motivate and coordinate within each other. And this has really only happened kind of four times in the last couple thousand years. Things like the state, the market, the firm, and more recently, the network. And now we're, we're seeing the blockchain. So this is to say these are two big transitions and, and, and macro concepts that haven't happened much, and they're happening today. And that's what we talk about. So tune in to listen to Albert and I chat about this. And you can also listen to me butcher the pronunciation of many authors' last names and have Albert correct me. Enjoy the show. Thanks. Hello, listener friend. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. In this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world. And so we have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. Uh, There's humanity-level systems like venture capital and philosophical macro trends. That's what we're going to be talking about today. There's also kind of company and individual-level systems, things like lean and agile and mental models. And there's also code-level systems, technological systems like crypto economics and machine learning. Um, And so within each series... We're actively also being cognizant of like the power and who's talking. So this means that I'll also be trying to get more diverse interviewees, women, people of color, etc. That's the macro trend within this podcast. And today we're going to talk about humanity level systems, um, asking the question, where are we as humanity headed? And I'm very happy to introduce Albert Wanger to the show. Albert is a managing partner at Union Square Ventures, one of the top investors in blockchain, and is the author of World After Capital, a book about the upcoming nonlinear transition to a world where capital is no longer scarce. Albert, thanks for being on the show. Great to be here. Excited to dive in. So let's do so. Um, First, can you just talk about World After Capital? What is the macro thesis there? How can we kind of bring the listeners into understanding it? Uh, the macro thesis is that uh, we are in a transition um, out of the industrial age into a new age um, that in the book I call the knowledge age. And the thesis is that this transition is as profound as the transition prior to that from the agrarian age to the industrial age and going even further back from the forager age to the agrarian age. Um, each of those transitions, we change pretty much everything about how humanity lives. Uh, and... Um, Each of those transitions um, was in response to a new set of technologies. The initial technologies were agricultural technologies, such as seeds and uh, fertilization and domestication of animals and 
um, uh, systems for um, bringing water to fields. Um, so uh, all set of interlocking technologies. Um, and now then we had, you know, um, that was sort of 10,000 years ago. Then a couple hundred years ago, we had the Enlightenment. Uh, we came up with, you know, chemistry and physics and steam machines and electrical machines. Yay. And we had this industrial age transition. Now, and this is the key thing I think that a lot of people get wrong, we have computers and a lot of people treat computers as just another machine. And they're like, well, we all had machines for 200 years and now we have another type of machine. But what they get wrong is that digital machines are nothing like the machines before. And instead, they are as profound a set of changes as those prior changes. And so the central thesis is we're going to have to change everything again. And when I mean everything, I mean how we live, how we, where we get meaning from, um, you know, what kind of our religions look like, if any, um, you know, how we, how we, uh, how humanity procreates. I mean, all of those things have changed, and they're going to need to change again. Got it. Yeah. So, this is the thing that we're experiencing now is at the ten thousand year scale. This has only happened three times or whatever. This is not just oh, this is you know at a ten year like oh, this is kind of an interesting thing that's happening. Um, and I actually talk about why it's different um, and why it's actually a true new nonlinear jump and especially talking about some of your like first principles around transaction costs and like what computers can solve. Yeah, so the key um, things that make digital technologies foundationally different from the analog technologies that came before them are zero marginal cost and universality. So um, let me start with zero marginal cost. Uh, you know, you're using a microphone to record this podcast. Um, if you want somebody else to use that microphone, they can't use it at the same time. So if you do want somebody to be able to use it at the same time, you need to make a second microphone. And that costs a lot of money. But the images or the sound that we create from this podcast, once you have a digital copy, getting everybody in the world a digital copy is essentially basically at the margin free. So if we have a million listeners and you get a million and one listener, that million and one listener causes no additional cost. And that is fundamentally different. And the reason it's different is because a lot of what economic theory predicts, both in the small, the structure of markets, so microeconomics, and macroeconomics, how big economies behave, those are predicated on marginal cost being non-zero. And sort of when you move that to zero, you kind of get a divide by zero error. So in a lot of these theories, that sort of numbers go to infinity and markets suddenly collapse. Uh, you don't get a market at all, or you get a market that's dominated by a single player. So it's very, very different from the analog world because of zero marginal cost. But we don't just have zero marginal cost, we also have universality. So I just made myself an espresso a second mm. ago with a very nice coffee machine, but all that that machine is going to make is coffee. It is not also going to analyze my tax returns, but um, <laughs> as much as I might wish that. Um, but once you have digital machines, the same machine subject to switching out a few bits can do very, very different things. And again, I'm sort of uh, generalizing a little bit because obviously we're building some custom machines, but by and large, digital technology is universal in the precise sense, which is the sense that anything that can be computed at all in the universe will be computable by these types of computers. Um, and when I say computable, I mean lots and lots of tasks that we carry out every day are really computational tasks, like the task of getting from home to your you know, to some other place to go visit a friend, for instance, that task consists of computing 
how do I get from this place to this place? Which like which street am I going to walk down? Am I going to take the subway? Am I going to you know um, uh, hail a cab? Um, drive my own car? Once I'm in my car, like you know how much should I put, push on the gas pedal? How much should I turn the steering wheel? Every one of those things is an act of computation. And because we know it's an act of computation, we know that a digital machine can carry it out. And that's very different because analog machines are very precise. That coffee maker, again, is not also going to do my text return or drive a car or any of the other things I just mentioned. Yeah. So thinking about when I think about that one, that the universality of computation, I think about it in the kind of machine platform crowd, this recent book, my McAfee sure. around with machines and, and Brent Nielsen. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. I can't yeah. s pronounce his name. Sorry. Yeah, but Eric was my thesis advisor at <laughs> okay. MIT. So we Eric, got would be, uh, Eric would be uh, not pleased if I didn't uh, <laughs> right. correct your citation of McAfee the author. McAfee and Brent Nielsen. How do you say that again? Brent Nielsen. Brent yes. Nielsen. Okay, great. McAfee and Brent Nielsen. And, and they're talking about how, yeah, machines, we traditionally think of them as like, oh, you can solve some of these like narrow tasks or what have you. But then they start to look at, you know, Kahneman's OS1 and OS2 biases. And you're like, oh my God, machines are really good at solving all these things. And they just keep on expanding the amount of things, the universality essentially of machines there. Um, I think that's your point around networks and marginal costs also kind of aligns with their two other macro trends of platforms and crowds um, and how you can kind of really get these massive big scales. So kind of on that point as well, could you dive into a little bit, a big um, thing within the venture capital space is Ben Thompson's aggregation theory around how, you know, we have these new super aggregators like Facebook and Google that essentially because of zero marginal costs and zero transaction costs, they can essentially get all these new marginal users into their base. Um, and one issue with it that you kind of talk about in your book as well is kind of antitrust where you get something like Facebook or Google and it's like, oh, in the past, maybe we want to have like regulation here to, you know, make them go away. But like, really, they're just making really good user experiences. How do you think about like aggregation theory and antitrust within World After Cap? Yeah. So so I think that um, there is uh, another effect um, that becomes possible when you have zero marginal cost. And that's sort of the network effect. Right. And the network effect is that as your service grows, you can actually deliver a better service to all your users. So not just the marginal user, but also the inframarginal, the earlier users, right? So, um, and obviously this is very you know, clear in a consumer uh, network such as Twitter or Facebook. Uh, the more people are on there, the more people you can potentially connect with and you can get information from. And so the benefit to every existing um, node on the network grows as the network grows. Yep. So because we now have network effects in many, many parts of the economy, um, we also wind up with these sort of markets in which you have sort of a vastly dominant player. Um, you know, we have Amazon as a dominant player in online retail. We have Facebook as a dominant player in sort of social networking. We have Google as a dominant player in search. And uh, the question naturally arises, you know, uh, what are the pros and cons of such dominance? Um, you know, there are certain advantages. Uh, you know, a lot of us buy stuff on Amazon because it's insanely convenient. And um, they've also driven down prices a lot on, on many products. So there are, um, at first blush, uh, a lot of consumer advantages. Uh, you know, lots of people are on Facebook. But then when you sort of step back a little further, you also begin to recognize, well, there are also some disadvantages here. And, you know, if Amazon decides not to sell your product or to 
Um, if Facebook decides that your app shouldn't be able to be all that visible in the news feed or Facebook decides to amplify certain types of news because lots of people seem to be liking it, um, but that turns out to be you know, uh, very incendiary or, or sort of just a cheap emotional hook. So all of a sudden, um, these large companies become centers of power in the world. And so that raises the question, how should you think about those centers of powers and what you should, should you do about them? And, and my answer in World After Capital, I think is quite different from the answer of a lot of people. Um, I think this is really about who controls computation and information in a um, uh, programmatic sense, right? So, um, you know, you, we talked earlier about smartphones and um, a smartphone is kind of a weird thing because it's a supercomputer and it's a supercomputer that you pay for and it, you, you know, keep, keep charged and you pay for the data plan to connect you to the internet. But then when you hit, tap that Facebook um, icon in that moment, Facebook completely takes over your supercomputer and it acts only on, on Facebook's behalf, not on your behalf. Yeah. And so a lot of my writing and thinking is around, okay, regulation that would make it so that my supercomputer works on my behalf and connects to all the computers that Facebook has. But I get to kind of control what happens on my end. Yeah. And that's not a, in a, it's not a dream because in the world of the web browser, that's exactly what we had. The web browser in the HTTP protocol is called the user agent. And you have real power in that world, right? One exhibit A of the real power you have in that world is you can strip ads. Now, people may not like it that you can strip ads, but it shows that you have real power. But like, I can instruct my browser to save a local copy or a Dropbox copy of everything I type into a form. Like, I have real power in that world. The second we move back to the devices, we lose that power again. So how could we restore that power on the device? Well. One sort of extreme form of regulation would be just to say, look, any consumer service that has more than a million users needs to provide every user with an API key. So meaning anything I can do on Facebook through the Facebook app, I should be able to do through an app that you and I or some other people write. Um, and all I need to do is request my API key. Facebook gives me my API key. And now I have access, programmatic access to my timeline, to posting, to... Um, you know, my friends and my feed and so forth. And now I can have computation that I control or that I've delegated to a third party to control on my behalf. That computation now can balance out all the millions of servers that Facebook operates. That to me is the fundamental shift we need to get to. We need to shift computational power back to the edges and the uh, the nodes of the network, not the center, the central operator of the network. Yeah, I like that. And I think that's aligned with a couple of things that you're working on within the blockchain space, like, you know, things like self-sovereign identity allow for some of this, you know, the paid API keys like you're talking about. It also reminds me of a lot of the platform cooperativism movement where you say, hey, let's kind of distribute power back into the network, have the people be able to govern and own and, and determine how they're, they're using their computation. Um, so that makes sense. Tell me, Kind of, so we've talked a little bit about the kind of aggregation theory side and how you think about antitrust and you know centralization versus decentralization. There, let's kind of go more philosophical and kind of historical and talk about the overlap between World After Capital and Sapiens and Homo Deus. Um, these two historical books written by Harari. Am I saying that last name right? I think Yuval Harari. Yeah, okay. that's right. Sweet, I'm 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 two for three. Um, and so first, let's talk about 
you know, sapiens and their definitions of humanism, and you talk about humanism a lot within World After Capital, sapiens kind of defines into liberal humanism, socialist humanism, and evolutionary humanism. And liberal humanism is kind of like Western kind of self um, humanism. Socialist humanism is kind of like communist kind of, you know, like we all the people kind of humanism. And evolutionary humanism is kind of like Naziist, kind of like there are greater and there are less than um, humanists. How do you think about humanism going forward? Does it fit into one of those buckets? Or, or how, do you, how would you like us to be humans going forward? Yeah, so um, I have a whole chapter on uh, humanism uh, in World After Capital um, where I try to um, do two things. One is give a different view of why humanism makes sense, but also provide an objective basis for it. And I think this is uh, my biggest criticism of uh, both of Harari's books, which is that uh, he basically argues that all narratives are equally valid that there's no objective basis and that humanism is just one narrative. Um, I think he also presents a bit of a bastardized version of what original humanist thinking was about, um, which he really doesn't actually go into, which, you know, uh, what he calls liberal humanism is actually, uh, in a historic um, view, uh, not enlightenment humanism, but is really what happened after Enlightenment, when there was a romanticist backlash to Enlightenment. And the type of humanism that I'm interested in is the original Enlightenment type humanism. So what do I mean by that? First thing is, there is an objective difference between humans and all other species on this planet, which is that only we humans have knowledge. And I mean knowledge here in a very precise sense. Uh, this is externalized either recorded like this podcast or written down uh, content that other humans can then uh, enjoy or work with or learn from across both time and space. So I can pick up a book today that was written 2000 years ago in some other part of the world. Yeah. And it turns out that having that kind of knowledge is extraordinarily powerful because what it allows us to do is it allows us to improve knowledge over time through um, a process of uh, critical inquiry, right? So um, I can have a couple of different motions here. I can take something that somebody else created and I can critique it, or I can create my own competing version. And often in creating my own competing version, I will actually draw on the earlier versions and modify or improve them in some way. And so there is a process that is uh, somewhat related to the process of evolution, but here's a process that we can proactively engage in as opposed to the evolutionary process, which just kind of happens. Um, and through this process of critical inquiry, knowledge gets better over time. And knowledge, when it gets better, also becomes more powerful. Uh, so the fact that we can have this, uh, you can create this podcast, that we're doing it uh, over a Skype call, um, that I'm doing it on an insanely powerful laptop, all of that is only possible because of the cumulative knowledge of many, many, many generations of humans. Yep. And it is this power that is the objective, this power of knowledge is the objective basis for putting humans at the center of the universe. So when, when Harari says there is no basis for putting humans at the center, why not put dolphins at the center? You know, The answer is because dolphins don't have knowledge, humans have knowledge. And to quote 
Spider-Man, this all-important <laughs> work, with great power comes great responsibility, yep. right? We are responsible for the dolphins, not the dolphins for us, exactly because we have knowledge and they don't. So um, I think this is, the power of knowledge is one of the central ideas of World After Capital. And um, the reason the book is called World After Capital is because capital is no longer the binding constraint. There's enough uh, we have enough ability to produce physical and financial capital. Um, the binding constraint now is human attention, and specifically with how are we using our attention to drive our knowledge forward. Um, human history is filled with civilizations that got to a certain point of knowledge and then stopped developing their knowledge further, which meant that they eventually encountered a problem that they couldn't solve. So if you go to the Yucatan, you will find the Maya civilization. They were very advanced. They invented the zero. They had fairly elaborate astronomy. Um, but eventually they got stuck in this very um, static society that was obsessed with court ritual, with intrigue, with local wars. And they've stopped developing their knowledge further. And then when the climate changed ever so slightly in the Yucatan, um, all of a sudden their societies, which they built large cities, tens of thousands of people, just fell apart. And it's ironic that we are finding ourselves as humanity as a whole in a not dissimilar place. We um, have come a very long way. We've had some very dynamic societies. Um, we've created a lot of physical capital. Markets have been extraordinarily successful. Now we're obsessed with markets. We think markets can solve everything. And we're taking the eye of the ball, including taking the eye of the climate ball, which is now presenting a threat um, on a global scale, similar to the one that the Yucatan experienced. And I'm giving just that one example. Human civilization is full of such um, civilizations that got to a certain level, then somehow became static, stopped developing <laughs> their knowledge, then confronted a threat that destroyed them. Yeah. So thinking more about, I mean, I agree with you generally that you have, that we have this transition from, you know, there was the agricultural revolution and we went from scarcity with land to scarcity or scarcity of food, to scarcity of land. And then with the enlightenment and the industrial revolution, we go from scarcity of land to scarcity of capital. Now, you know, we've spent, you know, hundreds of years just like with machines of various varieties making awesome stuff. And we're into the world close to like abundance of, and this gets into the concepts of universal basic income and what have you. I want to push back a bit, though, on this concept of attention as um, as the new scarcity here, and primarily from the from the frame of mind of like like attention is essentially like time, and like of course time would be our scarce thing because time is like the one scarce thing. It's like it goes through, you know, you have one second, and the next second, and the next second. Why is it useful for us to think about time as a scarce resource um, within this this new version of the future? Yeah, the reason I'm calling it attention, not time, is because um, when a day has passed, you know, if you think about yesterday, um, the thing that matters at the end is what did you pay attention to during that day? Like, what was your conscious brain focused on for the course of that day? And I would argue that we have both an individual and a collective crisis of attention. So at the individual level, the crisis of attention is not enough attention to our own emotional needs, the emotional needs of our friends, uh, crucial questions in life like what is my purpose in life? Um, we rush, 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 and we don't 
spend time on those. Uh, we don't give attention to those crucial things. Um, and attention is more than just time. It's the consciousness that is directed at something during that time. Um, and then collectively, you know, I already mentioned climate change, but there are lots of other collective things that we should be spending more attention on, such as, you know, um, everything that falls under the category death from above, like <laughs> asteroid strikes, you know, aliens. Existential um, risks. Yep. Yes. Um, but also upsides, you know, uh, like dramatic improvements in healthcare, in longevity, in um, access to learning. You know, I mean, we have all these incredible upside opportunities at the moment as well that we're not paying enough attention to. And why is that? The reason is that we have become so enamored with the price system and with markets. Because markets with prices were so extraordinarily successful. I mean, if you compare the success of the market-based system to the communist system the, or other forms of directed systems, it's just clear that markets are a phenomenal thing for solving a lot of problems. Now we've become market absolutists, and that's a huge mistake because now we think everything can be solved through the market, but attention cannot be allocated well through markets. Why? Because the most important things, both individually and collectively, do not have a price and cannot have a price. So, you know, to give an example, very long tail risk, like asteroid strikes, cannot have a price. There is no market because markets cannot work when something happens once a hundred thousand, once a million years. Okay, um, you cannot have a market-based approach to that. Let me give you another example. Because of zero marginal cost, we want as much free learning content in the world as possible because now we have positive externalities. The content is free, so by definition, there cannot be a price on it, right? So the price mechanism is not going to give us additional free content. Um, another example on the sort of personal level, you know, you finding your purpose in life. There's no market for that. It's your purpose. There's a market of one, okay? Mm -hmm. So there will never be a price attached to you finding your purpose. So you're allocating attention, your attention cannot be driven by a price system. And this is very important to understand, and, and I want to draw another important historic analogy. If you look at the early United States, something like 80% of the population was working in agriculture. Today, it's 5%-ish, maybe less. Now, I believe that when we are in, successfully have arrived in the knowledge age and look back, we will recognize that at present day, something like 80% of the population of the you know, population of working age, anyhow, is engaged in economic activities. And we will get to a place where maybe sub 10% of all of our activities, economic activities. That doesn't mean we're going to sit around and be bored, just like we're not working in the field anymore, we're working other things. But what happened to agriculture can happen to all of economic activity. All the price-based stuff can wind up being 10% of human attention. And all the non-price-based stuff, which currently has been squeezed into this tiny pocket, can expand to be 90% of human activity. Yeah. I like that as a far future version of reality where all of our price-based things are not are, are less than 10% of our thought. I do want to push back a bit on the on the markets and prices piece as well, which is that so let me give you so with the like long-term tail risk uh, that you talked about. I could on each of the three I actually want to push back maybe. So so the first one was long-term tail Go risk. Um, and uh, are you are you familiar with the like effective altruist movement? 
Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I would categorize myself as a relative effective altruist, and they try to put um, – like uh essentially they try to wait based off of like quality adjusted life years and like long-term you know human future and things on say okay here's the magnitude of how many human lives good human lives will be lost or what have you by um you know things like artificial intelligence or climate change or what have you and so they are essentially trying to take these things and i agree that if something hasn't happened in the future we won't or if something hasn't happened in the past it would be difficult to determine if it'll happen in the future but we can kind of look at these big existential risks and say hey this artificial intelligence super um, existential risk is hypothesized. We can break it down into its subcomponents. We say, oh, it's hypothesized to be bigger or less big than this asteroid um, existential risk. And then when you can kind of make those arguments to humanity as a whole, you can say, hey, everybody, we should maybe concentrate on this existential like tail risk. What are your yeah, thoughts on something I, like that? I don't, I don't disagree with that at all, mm -hmm. but that's not a market-based mechanism. That's just logic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that you can get very far with logic, right? Um, and logic says, for instance, that if some other big object shakes loose, either in the Kuiper belt or in the word cloud, and comes on a trajectory and hits us, it's going to be really bad <laughs> because modern civilization is not built to withstand such a, a, a... And, you know, the planet supports 7 billion people only because of our technological systems, and a lot of our technological systems would be severely disrupted by such an incident, yep. which means that it would probably throw us back a very, very long way. But that's not markets, that's logic. So, and so I think logic is very powerful, but there's no market force here. Mm -hmm. Markets require, functioning markets require lots of participants, yep. um, and they require a demand and a supply curve that kind of can work off each other to form a price. That's what functioning markets require. And we don't have that here. And we're not going to have it. Yep, yep. I would claim that we, so that is logic. And then that logic leads to hypothesized impact. And what I think we might see in the future, and I'm not sure, and you might disagree here, is that we might start to see these markets for impact where we start to, and this is kind of what the effective altruist community is. It's essentially them saying, hey, if you want to claim that you're going to do good for the world on this, any of these existential risks, make that claim to us. We only have so much money um, and we will pay the people who we think are going to do the best job at helping humanity as a whole. So I do think that you can start to get these markets for impact um, and that we're just at the beginning of seeing some of these new markets for impact show up like social impact bonds and things of that variety. Do you, kind of, do you, do you see what I'm saying there? Um, Unconvinced? Yeah, I, I, um, um, I think this is the kind of thing where we're trying to import the market paradigm yes. because we've convinced ourselves that everything needs to be solved through the market. I think totally. it's sort of like a, it, it's sort of like a, oh, markets work so well. So how do we like make some really sort of contorted motion yes. to convince ourselves that this needs a market-based approach. Yeah. I, I, I guess what, what, I would, what I would rather see us do is, I would rather see us, and this is a big thrust of the book, yeah. you know, World After Capital, I would rather see us create many more freedoms so that the pure altruistic in motive can be given more room to run. One thing that we understand yep. incredibly well in the world is that monetary incentives are insanely powerful. They're so powerful that once you inject monetary incentives into something, you overrule almost all other incentives. 
You know, that's why, um, you know, when you have like incredibly strong sales commissions for account opening like Wells Fargo, you wind up with fake accounts, mm-hmm. right? Yep. <laughs> um, and so what I worry a little bit is that, you know, that we should really be going the opposite direction. We should be going to the direction of sort of saying, you know, how can we free people from a lot of this sort of hyper incentivized ex- extrinsic motivation treadmill that we're now trying to introduce everywhere yep. and instead go much more to a world of intrinsic motivation. You know, um, and I believe the way we're going to solve these big problems is largely through intrinsic motivation and by freeing intrinsic motivation to unfold itself. And in the book, I talk about three freedoms that I believe we need to create for this intrinsic motivation to be able to unfold itself. And I call them economic freedom, informational freedom and psychological freedom. So the economic freedom part is some form of universal basic income so that people don't have to work just in order to survive. Um, I believe, incidentally, as a side note, that this is going to make the labor market much healthier than it is today. Because in a market where you don't have a walkaway option, uh, you don't get very good price discovery for the actual price of labor. Yep. Um, The second type of freedom is freedom we've already talked about earlier, which I call informational freedom, which is... In order for me to be able to um, pursue sort of the things that come through my intrinsic motivation, I also can't be slave to large centrally controlled systems, but rather I need to be able to um, start forming my own groups, um, controlling that group needs to be able to control its own set of computational resources, access to information. Um, So that's another important freedom that we need to have to have more human activity happen on the basic of intrinsic motivation. And then the third freedom, which I call psychological freedom, has to do with how do we minimize all the sort of baggage that we bring around with us from millions of years of evolution, you know, all the way down to sort of the reptilian layer systems of, you know, fight, flight type response, um, then sort of higher level emotions, which are good. I'm not trying to get rid of emotions. I'm just trying to get us to the point where we aren't easily emotionally hijacked in a way that then makes it impossible for us to use the sort of, you know, system one versus system two, um, thinking of, of Kahneman, um, you know, what makes us distinctly human isn't the parts we share with the animals. It's the parts we don't. That's what makes us distinctly <laughs> human. So, so when you're acting, when, when people are saying, well, it's human to have emotion, like, no, my cat and my dog have emotions also, right? Uh, they can be happy and unhappy. Um, what makes us distinctly human is that we can then talk about it. Yep. Uh, that we can write books about it, songs about it, make art about it. That is what makes us distinctly human. But we can only do that when we aren't completely hijacked by those emotions to the point where you know we just start yelling at each other online or where, where all we do is hit refresh on our Twitter feed um, because all we need is another quick dopamine hit um, off the machine. Yep. Yeah, and I think that the, I mean, in your highest level point there with those three freedoms as a, you know, the the voice and exit book by Kirschleifer. <laughs> Do you know that? Kirschleifer. Kirschleifer, I think. <laughs> You're my pronunciation expert. I don't know. No, Hirschman, no, Hirschman, Hirschman, it's Hirschman. Definitely Hirschman, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. In any case, yeah, so, so what I was claiming there was, hey, let's use this market within the system of markets and, and, and money. Let's put values, let's quantify everything, start to quantify impact, and then you know, express voice within that system. And what you're saying is, hey, we can also exit that system by creating these three new freedoms. And once everybody has something like universal basic income, boom, we start 
people don't need to be as attached to the extrinsic motivation. They can start just doing good both within their community and at the macro level. And lots of relatively big projects are going to get a lot easier. So if you take a big project like trying to um, clean up a section of the environment, like you know the uh, big garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean and so forth, you know, um, it'll be a lot easier to get volunteers when the volunteers aren't thinking, oh my God, but how am I going to like pay for food or lodging or anything else? Um, and um, we're going to get a lot more people experimenting with sort of crazy things like, you know, working on building nuclear fusion. And again, even there, like assembling a, a really large group of people to work on a new idea will get a lot easier when people have um, they're not tied geographically to the one place where they're currently earning their living, but they are become more mobile. Yep. Um, many people are also scared of that because they're worried about the power shift that it will represent in the world when uh, people are more mobile, when people are less weighed down by having to have a job. And that's why I am saying humanism is so important because we need to have a set of values. If we unleash everybody, but we don't have any values, that is going to end badly, right? So, so you know, and so, and that's why it's very dangerous. Coming back to Harari, it's very dangerous to sort of say, well, humanism is just another narrative. All narratives are equally valid. Well, if all narratives are equally valid, then ISIS's narrative is valid, mm -hmm. right? And so, I think that's not going to take us forward as humanity. I think we need to understand and claim our place and claim with it bear the responsibilities that are on our shoulders because we are the species with knowledge on this planet. Um, and so the values that come from humanism are things like allowing the process of critical inquiry to work. So it's very important that uh, we don't, you know, um, sort of manipulate people at mass scale, that we don't suppress uh, the development of new ideas. Uh, that we don't suppress art um, and sort of creative expression. Uh, and then, um, uh, so that's one really important value. Yeah. And then the other really important value is this value of the sense of responsibility um, because we have knowledge. And then the other, I think, really important value that comes out of it is this idea that, you know, humans are, as a first approximation, much more equal to each other than we're different from each other, right? So. There's a lot of emphasis on differences, um, which I understand because historically these differences have caused a great deal of injustice in the world, and a lot of that injustice persists over time. But I do think that um, if we want to focus on a future in which we're all individually freer, yep. then focusing on the idea that as humans, we as a first approximation, have way more in common with each other than with anything else um, that's on this planet, that that's the overriding principle, that that also means we are responsible not just for these other species, but for each other and for each other's freedoms. Um, I think that's, we need something like that because if we don't, we will, that vacuum um, will get filled with very bad narratives, um, such as you know the ISIS narrative or the Trump or the Brexit narrative. All of these narratives have something in common, by the way. They're all about, we have the answer, and the answer is to go back to the past. Yep. Yep. 
and you want to go towards into the future. And as we know that these storytelling narratives are kind of crucial to saying, hey, this is the story that we're going to be creating for ourselves. And I think that, you know, people like Naval Ravikant as well talk about a lot of this as well, where it's like, hey, you know, and, and they, in, in, I guess in the final couple minutes here, I'd love to talk about blockchain as both sure. a narrative and, uh, and we've talked a little bit about blockchain and self-sovereign identity. Um, and I would love to dive a little bit more into kind of an, an adjacent concept here um, and kind of the talk that you gave at Blockstack Summit um, around motivation and coordination, how blockchains could be a new way to kind of – they're both a narrative of the future that's more decentralized, equitable, whatever, and they're a new way to kind of organize humans in society. So could you talk about that and maybe how it overlaps with World After Capital? Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's a good transition. So, so one of the ways um, that we can think about all human activity – is that um, human activity requires two key components. There's sort of the motivation component, and we've talked about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation a bunch here. Yep. Um, and then there's the sort of coordination component, um, which I also mentioned briefly, like, you know, if you want to clean up the garbage patch in the Pacific, you need a bunch of people to show up there. Yep. Um, if you want to have a podcast, even just the two of us right now, we had to agree on a time yep. and a channel on which we're both <laughs> going to be, and that's yep. coordination. And so a lot of kind of uh, organizational technology over the years has aimed at helping us with both motivation and coordination. Um, what, what do I mean when I say organizational technology? Well, um, a farmer's market is a type of organizational technology. A bunch of farmers come to the same place. And so you can walk around as a consumer and go like, well, those cherries look better than those cherries, but these are a little more expensive. So I'm going to take the cheaper ones, you know, like you can make choices. And what this type of market optimizes for is it provides a very high degree of motivation because, you know, the farmer who sells you the cherries, they like that's they get to keep this. Uh, it doesn't necessarily um, help with a lot of coordination. Um, so the farmers don't tend to talk to each other ahead of time and say, well, I'm bringing the cherries, you bring the apples, <laughs> right? So they may both bring apples and there may be no cherries and, you know. Um, no. So, so conversely, you know, and on the other sort of almost extreme, we've had this organizational technology known as the firm. And what a firm does is uh, it pays its employees a wage and the wage initially may not be dependent on anything. You know, you, you paid a annual salary and so if you paid an annual salary, then to some degree, the company gets to coordinate your activities. It gets to say, well, we want you, Riz, to go and attend the conference uh, in Arizona on this date. Um, and it's part of your job. And you're like, well, my pay isn't higher or lower whether I'm going to Arizona or not. So I'll go to Arizona, right? So, um, so, so the firm indexes very highly on coordination but now you've suppressed motivation because you're like, well, I'm getting paid whether I do a good job at this conference or not. So yep. firms then spend a lot of their time trying to reinvigorate motivation. Now, technology, information technology has brought us a new organizational form. And we talked about that organizational form before as well. And that's the network. So a network is somewhere between a market and a firm. And it has elements of both, and it turns out to be very powerful. So if you think about Amazon, Amazon Marketplace has a lot of individual sellers in it. But Amazon provides that added coordination layer on top where they're like, oh, we don't have products in this area, so let's get some suppliers in here. Oh, we have too many products in here. Oh, based on customer reviews, we can propose what other products you might buy. Like 
that's a coordination layer that didn't exist in the traditional market. And so we love that these networks can give us, in a way, more coordination and more motivation than our past organizational technologies. But what we don't like is that these networks have central control. And so the promise of blockchain technology is that we can have networks and that we can have these added coordination benefits that networks provide relative to the market and we can have added motivation benefits relative to the firm uh, and yet have networks that aren't centrally controlled. And that is the, the big promise of blockchain technology. But I want to provide an immediate caution, which is technology itself is not determinative, you know, and this is the opening chapter of World After Capital. Like if you think of our, one of our oldest human technologies is fire, right? So you can use fire to cook food, you can use it to uh, bake uh, bricks um, for building houses, but you can also use it to burn down other people's homes, yeah. right? And so, um, and so blockchain technology, there are a lot of people in the field who are like, it's gonna be awesome, it's gonna make the world better because it's decentralized. Well, decentralized use cases include really amazing things, um, you know, like really great um, tools, for instance, self-sovereign identity, like a decentralized systems, system where I get to control my identity as opposed to, let's say, GitHub for engineers or, you know, nation states for your passport, et cetera. Um, but on the other hand, it'll also include really like super anonymous ways of funneling money into terrorist activity and other like nefarious things. Yeah. So like decentralized technology spans the whole gamut. It makes many more things possible than were possible before, but they include both good and bad things. And we can't just sit there and say, because it's decentralized, it'll be good. No, like we need the technology and we need the values. Like what is it that we want to build with this technology? And I think that's been the history of technology. There's no one technology that is just like, yep, immediately, universally good. Sweet. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think that, that that goes into that tech society loop that a lot of people talk about where it's like, you know, Conway's Law, where it's you, you are creating the technology, this technology informs you, but you have to inform where it's going to go. Um, and the other key thing that I want to state here is that these, the world after capital, this is the intersection and convergence of two key things I see. One is that there's this, we're in this nonlinear transition that has only happened, you know, three times in the last couple, you know, tens of thousands of years into this transition from world with capital to where, you know, where capital is scarce to where attention is scarce. That's happening and that's kind of crazy. We're also in this new thing where, you know, these new kind of coordination networks or coordination systems don't happen that often. You know, you think about like the government or the market or the state, you know, it's like, hey, we got this new one, which is blockchain. That's another big one that's happening here. So if you kind of think in your mind, what can I do at the intersection of these two things, aka talk, talk to Albert, um, it's a good place to be. <laughs> I think that's a great way to wrap it up because I think that is spot on. You're absolutely right that these kind of, um, uh, innovations, they come in clusters, right? Yeah. It's a bunch of things all happening at once that both make the phase shift possible and yeah. also necessitate it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and I think this is another thing that's really important to remember is, um, you know, in this very large picture, like when we went from the forager age to the agrarian age, we had both like the Athenian Renaissance, which like incredible progress, um, uh, and uh, we, but also we had the dark ages, right? And when we went into the industrial age, 
we develop uh, liberal democracies that provide extraordinary uh, both material and, and rights gains for citizens, but we also had fascism and communism, Stalinism, and you know we killed millions and millions of people in the process. So like, you know, again, we have this extraordinary possibility for change, but we can wind up in many different places from here. I think what keeps me so excited is that I do believe we can live in a utopia, and I tend to try and spell it e-utopia, which means good place, <laughs> um, as opposed to utopia, which sort of means no place. Mm. But I also think that there are a great many dystopian um, worlds that are possible. And so we really need to kind of get our act together here, <laughs> yep. like in relatively short order, so that we get to this good place. Yep, I love it. Well, with that, um, if you're a blockchain company, definitely uh, go and hit up Albert or anybody else at UnionScore Ventures to build this kind of new world that is both decentralized but has good values. Also, if you're on the philosopher side, uh, get into World After Capital. Albert is making it in through kind of an open source Git book way, kind of like GitHub but for books, so you can kind of chat with him about that. Um, he's also, I think, maybe looking for a copy editor still. I'm not sure. <laughs> and so with that, Albert, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and yeah. Any, any final thoughts? Great pleasure talking to you. Great. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a good day.